Good afternoon. Welcome to the Serious Security Seminar. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, today's speaker, Dr. Xingming Ou. Uh, Dr. Ou is an associate professor of computer science and uh, Peggy and Gary Edward Chair in Engineering at Kansas State University. He received his PhD from Princeton University in 2005. And uh, between 2005 and 2006, he was a postdoc here with uh, Professor Elisa Bertino and me. And uh, today, he will talk about uh, security analytics. Well, thank you very much, Ninghui, for the introduction. It's a great pleasure to be back to Purdue, and it's really great to see uh, all of you here. Thank you for coming. And I really, like, uh, really appreciate this opportunity to talk about my uh, past about eight and a half years' work on uh, understanding how security analysts do, do, do their jobs and how that actually leads us to a new project we are just uh, conducting now on bringing anthropology into cybersecurity. So you may feel this is a little weird why anthropology has anything to, to do with security, but if you know security is essentially a human problem, that is certainly not very surprising. Right. So just give you a sort of like a very illustrative uh, illustration on what I've been trying to do over those uh, eight and a half years. So my research fo focus has been and is still on you know, how to help this poor guy. Right. So uh, if, if you have any chance of you know, managing a computer system, trying to un understand what's going on or diagnose the force or you know, you know, diagnosing you know, potential breaches, you know it's a huge challenge. Uh, there are so many devices, there are so many uh, sources of uh, information that may be useful for you to understand what's really going on, and you have to put all of this in, into your head and understand their semantics and find the connections between the events to make a determination. And that's an extreme challenge for a human to do, especially because a lot of tasks are repetitive, mundane, and non-interesting. But at the same time, they're also extremely, you know, require a lot of high expertise in both security and system and networking. So it's not it's both boring and interesting. So my my research goal at the very beginning was to say if I can save this guy by actually replacing him by a reasoning system, so that so that you can just press the button, it can find all the security issues in your system and report them uh, as high accurate, highly accurate uh, alerts. Now that vision has shifted over the years, and now I think it's the problem how to make the job more, more meaningful, more effective, but the human is always, always going to be part of the system. Right? So if you think about it, you know, defending a network is essentially one human playing a game with the other. So I don't think we can ever reach a stage in the foreseeable future for a computer program to completely do the job. Right. So the particular approach I've been trying to take over those years is actually, in some sense, non-traditional. Because we, we really want to make sure our solutions are actually mapping to the real world. So to that end, we will we'll adopt an empirical approach in a bottom-up fashion. What that means is we start with incident analysis, right? we talk to security analysts who handle security incidents to understand what happened, how he found out the breaches, what's the thought process he went through to identify them. And we get hold of data that we, when, when we can to look at the data and see if we can find something you know, useful there. 
And most important, we want to understand what are the needs of the human analyst. And that's not always obvious. And a lot of the, my effort has been trying to bridge the gap be, between what we are good at in the university, like both the theory, mathematical models, with the practical needs of security analysts. And it turns out it's a, it, there's a huge human dimension in this work. And in particular, a lot of times, if you ask an analyst, you know, how, do, how, you do, how do you do your job? They cannot really give you a straight answer, by the way. It's hard for them to explain the process that they, they take to solve a case. And there's actually a well-known terminology in anthropology to describe that. It's called tacit knowledge. And we, and we, we all have it. Uh, we can all do a lot, a lot of things, but we are not always able to clearly articulate how we do it. Now, if I take an example as you know, working with my students, you know, advising to teach my students how to do research. Now, it's not, not always easy to actually explain to someone how to do research, but somehow I can still teach it. Right? So, you know, what's the deal here? Uh, Michael Polanyi, who is a you know, science philosopher, had a saying that we can know more than we can tell. And that's actually the essence of tacit knowledge. So in some sense, a lot of my time is spent on how to convert tacit knowledge into a more explicit form. So you can actually model it and then producing algorithms to help humans solve, uh, solve those issues. So let me give you a concrete example to show why this could be challenging for security. Quite a few years ago, when I started this work, I was uh, talking with one of our security analysts on Campus Network. Uh, he, is a, he is a friend of mine. And uh, he is such a, a special case for analysts because he's both good at his work, and also he loves to explain what he does at his work. And this is not a very usual combination. Most of them are so busy, they don't even have time to talk to you about it. But he really loves talking to people how he solved the case. So what happened around that time was that you know, one of the days there was a, a very, very severe networking issue on the campus network. So nobody could go anywhere. It's essentially, you know, the whole network you know, you know, grinding down to a, to a halt. So there's a lot of uh, traffic going on. And that definitely raised an alert for the analyst. So what he did was to look at net, the net flow down, which I'm sure you all know what that means. I just see who are talking to to whom, my, from the campus network to the outside world, what he found out was some of the servers, I have said these are actually antivirus servers, they were communicating with some known botnet IP addresses. Right? So why, why do those servers do those things? That's not clear, but it's highly suspicious. Right? And then what he did was to, you know, uh, did a memory dump on one of those servers and see what was really going on. And what if he found out was there are some unknown code modules in the operating system that was sort of suspicious. He didn't know why these, these modules were there. They are, not, uh, that they are not, not known modules. And he also found IRC connections uh, between the server and other similar servers on the campus network. So with all of this, he concluded you know, these servers were compromised, you know, powered by, by the bot, and then they, he took them offline. So that's what he told us. Now, what we really wanted to, to know is the why. Right, so this is what he did. But if you ever want to you know, design a method to automate this or help the human to do the job, then we need to know how he, he moved from one point to the other. 
but then he didn't really tell us the rationale behind it. So it took us about a couple hours to, to sort of interrogate him, to dig into his thinking, to let us know uh, why he can move from one place to the other, how, what's the proper way to model it. And by the way, it, it took him about four or five hours to, to actually reach that conclusion, and we really want to make that you know, pace faster. Uh, oh, sorry about that. So after this, you know, long hours of conversation, what we found, found, uh, found, found out is the way to model this is probably something like this. If you think about this upper cloud as a human brain, and um, what that's coming at us is those events, right? You have IDS alerts, you have NetFlow dump, syslogs, all of those. So what happens is when you see those observable e events, you think about them, right? What do they mean? So you actually map those observations to some semantics in your mind, right? And then these little dots are those hypotheses that you start to form about what you see. Now these two are not always, you know, concretely connected. What that means is what one event could have multiple in interpretations. You're not always sure whether it's that's the true interpretation. So you, you just, there's some form of some shade of uncertainty in that kind of mapping. And But then what you can do is, okay, now you have one hypothesis. You can think about what that could mean in terms of what that can lead to or what can cause that. So you have some thinking going on in your head, and that can be hopefully modeled in, in some way, and then uh, as you think, you are going to need more data to either help you move, make progress to confirm the hypothesis or refute it. Right? So this will keep going, and you you don't stop unless you are satisfied with my with your conclusion. Right? A lot of times, what you can draw at the very beginning is very very shady. Right? It's very uncertain, but you really want to reach a high confidence conclusion at some point. And then you stop and say, oh, based on all the evidence and my thinking, and this is what happened, and here's the evidence. So we want to see how this can be modeled in this way. And, and that actually corresponds to how the analyst thought. And that's very important for us, because if our model is aligned with the real you know, human workflow, then we have a better chance of having our research prototype being actually used by the humans if this mapping actually exists. So just give you a really, really quick overview on how we model it. Uh, we have observations, and this is what you can see, but it's not always telling you what you want to know, which is the high hypothesis. But it, it can give you some, some clue. Right? So for example, if you have a, uh, see a anomaly high traffic on the network, well, that could mean somebody's doing something bad on your network. So you can use a predicate like attacker net activity to denote certain meaning that you care about. Even though there are zillions of different types of events you can gather from a network, most cases, the hypothesis you care about is probably only like a dozen. And you don't have a lot of things you want to think about. Uh, you could probably think about the machine is compromised or not, or is this a reconnaissance, or this is an exploit, those kind of things. So we, we can use a few predicates to describe those hypotheses, and we, and we try to map different types of events to those hypotheses. Now, because of the nature of interpreting the events, there's always uncertainty associated with those mapping. And different events will have di different weights in terms of how certain you are about those right-hand side. 
And that's important to capture because in the reasoning, you need to put those ways together to, to see how certain we are in the final conclusion. So we have to really have a first cut model. Now, we, don't, we did not really know what's the best way to model this because humans don't, didn't really use numbers in, in our head. Somehow we have a hunch feeling. So we just use a human language that are commonly found in certain data sources like you know, intrusion detection you know, signature you know, files. Uh, you, you can use things like possible, likely, certain. Sort of tells you, you know, how important this alert could be. And then we just use that in our rule, right, without further interpreting it using number. But this, this will come later. So different rules may have a, a different levels of certainty. Uh, these can be captured in this very, very ad hoc way, I would say. And then we also have those you know, brain model, right? We want to capture the thinking process. It's a very tiny part of human thinking, but we want to capture what actually matters for, for security analysis. Uh, here are a few rules from our internal model which capture, try to capture human reasoning. So we have hypothesis one infer hypothesis two. And this is, a, again, a logical rule with uncertainty. Right? I can give you a few examples here. So if a machine H1 is compromised by an attacker, then you can derive this machine can be used for further reconnaissance uh, into your network. So you can have a predicate that probe other machine to mean this is you know, using H1 as a vantage point to uh, perform reconnaissance into another machine H2. And then it's only a possibility here, since we don't really know what the attacker's choice is. He or she may choose to, to, to do this, or he may not. Uh, so it's only a possibility. Right? On, on the other hand, uh, I guess, how do I disable this? Well, I just connect. Turn off your wireless? Yeah, that's a good idea. Thank you. On the other hand, if you have a hypothesis like H1 is used to send an exploit to H2, right? and then we will say likely H2 will be compromised. Well, for the reason that attackers normally, for good attackers, you don't want to brand something which may not work. You test it beforehand, make sure you set up all the parameters right based on the reconnaissance. So when you send a real exploit, uh, with higher chance, it actually will get the target. So it's likely H2 will be compromised. So these are, in some sense, I'm trying to codify part of the human knowledge used in those analytic work. And then these are all logical rules. And once you have the rules, then you can imagine you can just apply very straightforward logical reasoning, right? applying the rules on the facts. Right? So we have the facts, for example, the memory dump shows there are, two, there are IRC connections between those two IP addresses. And then from this fact, we can see the first rule's left-hand side is matched, so you can fire this rule, instantiate the variables with the concrete values, and you can derive one more fact, which is the right-hand side of the rule. Now, every fact will also have a certainty tag associated with it, because the rule has a tag of likely. We we'll just put likely here as a tag of the fact. Yes? Uh, so how individualized are these rules? Do the same rules apply across all security admins, or do you have to personalize these rules? So these rules are actually generic. Uh, these rules capture the human knowledge used in analyzing different types of uh, scenarios. 
and at least that's that's our you know uh, objective. Uh, so we you know it's we, we don't really want to have a you know, different set of rules for a new event because then that would defeat the purpose of having a system to help you find new new attacks. Yeah. Um, and actually, these rules is what we call you know, observation correspondence. It can be defined based on the specific types of events you want to capture. So these are actually event-specific, but it's not scenario-specific. So if that's sort of answer your question. And not person-specific either. Uh, and not, not, not person-specific. <laughs> the user can presumably no, no, cal you know, calibrate those rules if no, one analyst believe it could mean something different, or you could actually change the the text in certain ways. Yeah, I think that's a you know valid way of using those those rules. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, in our experience, we find that the degree of paranoia mm -hmm. varies. Right, levels. right. And another point is there may be different contextual information that may be relevant in setting those parameters. Yeah, that's a very good point. So now you have those derivations, and you can keep going. We have a one, one new fact. Now you can match the, this second rule which we have in the system. Now it keeps going. But now uh, we have to take the rules modality and, and consider we are starting with a likely fact. So even though the rule is has certain mode, we can only take the less. Uh, so you still have likely in the, uh, in the conclusion. So just do this. you know. Mechanically, so you can actually perform this in a deductive database, and then you can actually perform this analysis uh, very efficiently. Right? The shift of the rule that we that we, we use will always have O n square complexity when n is the number of different IP addresses in the logs. Right? Now, normally when you try to you know prove something or try to do the derivation, if I can derive a fact, that means oh then that's good enough because I I find an evidential path to this particular hypothesis. However, because of the uncertainty in those facts, you want to know all the structure of possible derivation. So you, you need an exhaustive proof search. So not just one proof, but all the possible ways to prove this hypothesis. That can also be, be done in the same com com complexity as finding a single proof. So that's something we leverage from my past work. And then you have the proof graph which shows you all the possible ways to prove a hypothesis and use the graph structure to calculate or to infer how certain, certain hypothesis weights could be. Now, in this example, you have two corroborating evidential paths leading to the same hypothesis. You can strengthen the belief, because I have two independent ways to, to, to show me this machine is compromised. So maybe we can strengthen them into certain. Very ad hoc, right? So here is where we, okay, now is the time for to sort of reflect what, what we do. If this really ma makes sense, then make it really meaningful. We need to make sure, oh, there is a way we can interpret the process of strengthening. Now, what if you have you know, one likely, one possible, or three possible? There are so many different, you cannot just have these ad hoc rules like, like this. Now is the time we should okay, look for a probably mathematical model to help us calculate some numerical value that actually will make sense. It may not be exactly what humans does, because humans rarely use numbers when they look at the evidence, but maybe it can reflect what the humans would believe in. 
Uh, that's our next step at that point. So we're going to find a mathematical model to maybe say, if we can ascribe a particular numeric value to those tags, PLC, can we design a function that actually combine the evidence in a way so it would be interpretable by a human? Let's say we can have, in this case, we'll be combining two evidence paths, we'll get a different number, which will be a higher confidence level. The question is, what theory do we use? You would think, oh, of course, probability. Right? That's the first answer. Now, we actually did try, try that. We tried Bayesian approach, Bayesian network, but the results were always non-intuitive for some reason. Right? So then we sort of look at the problem and see, okay, what's, what's the cause of those non-intuitive results, and then what could be another theory to, you know, to interpret those calculations. So the choice of a theory turns out to be uh, Demster-Schaefer theory, which you may have heard about. And this theory, the reason we picked that is because we found it actually is aligned better with the human thinking process, and the results are also more meaningful when we applied that. So DS theory is a non-traditional prob probability theory, or a non-probability theory. It's, 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 it has been used uh, in the different types of applications, infusing the evidence or counting you know, expert uh, belief. So the key notion in DS, there are two key notions. One is called belief, the other is called possibility. So we are using the belief notion here. What that means is you know, how much we believe in a fact. And this is slightly different than how, what is the probability that this event is true, if you think about that. For example, we may, we may know there's always a probability that there may be you know, a burglary that happened at my home. Right? There's always a probability. I don't know that, but then I don't have reason to believe that. My belief is zero because we, I don't have any evidence to support that, even the probability is always there. Right? Another example is if I toss a coin with an unbiased, uh, with an un unknown bias, so how like I'll get a head versus a tail? tail right? It's not half and half because the, the bias is not, not known. So in probability, you really have to pick one. Uh, you cannot start any calculation without knowing that you know, prior distribution. But in DS, you can say, I don't know. I have no evidence whatsoever to say whether it's tail or head. So I just say either one. Right? Now, bring back to security, you can say, well, if there's no evidence for attack, I can ascribe my probability measurement to a subset of my hypothesis. So it's either attack or no attack, or unknown. Uh, that's the key, the key point for, mod for modeling. And we found that to be extremely useful to conduct security analysis because many times we don't really have the precise probability for every event that we need to calculate the overall probability of something being true or false. So when we don't have the numbers, we can either pick one, which may be inaccurate, we have a garbage in, garbage out problem, or we say we don't know. Right? So we decide we, we want to use we don't know. If we don't know, we just don't put any judgment on it. So that's sort of the uh, reason. And, and also, there is a way to combine evidence from multiple sources in DS, and that's exactly matching how the analyst uses multiple you know, evidence to support his or her conclusion. Now, the, the only thing is, in DS, in the classical DS, the combination only works for independent evidential path, but you have a lot of dependency in those 
evidence that you can get from logs or events. So we have to deal, deal with that. So let me quickly show you how you can set up this DS-based reasoning for the type of problem we, we, we were discussing. The first of all, you're actually going to ascribe a numeric value for each level of you know, PLCs. Right? We just pick some number. Right? Eventually, only the ranking is used. Right? We're not going to really interpret what 0 0.6 means. What matters is 0 0.6 is higher than 0 0.1. Right? So we just pick some numbers uh, to, to give you a you know, numerical ranking for each level of uh, confidence. And then for every alert you see in your system, you can actually ascribe this number to the sensor that actually is cr created it. The sensor in this case could be just an IDS signature. Right? Different signature will have different um, you know, ways of de detecting a problem if you read their the rule description will tell you it's possible means this or likely means that. So you can use those natural language description to infer those, you know, those tags and then the tags to the numbers. And then the next step is to set up the reasoning. Okay. So in DS, there's a notion called frames of discernment. And that means you can actually describe a disjoint set of states for a question of concern. So in this case, we have a question of concern of you have an alert. Uh, it's either you trust it or don't trust it. Okay. That means is the sensor doing the job it's supposed to be doing or is telling me something that's irrelevant. Okay. And then you also have a hypothesis, right? a probe IP1 to IP2. Now the matter of question here is, is it true or false? Okay. Do you believe that? So now you have two frames of, frames of discernment and process in DS called translation will actually can map one from the other. And it actually will map every element in the source domain of translation to a subset of elements in the destination domain. So since we do have a, a possible tag here, so we're going to first ascribe the 0 0.1 weight to trustworthy. So you trust the alert with 0 0.1 weight. And with 0 0.9, you don't trust it. And again, these are applied to subsets. These are sing singleton sets. Right? So it's not a single element. And then we're going to see, starting with trustworthy, how that correspond to your belief in the probe IP1 to IP2. So what we do here is to we're going to find what we call compatible elements in the destination domain with the source domain. An alert was fired. If you trust it, then you have to say this hypothesis is true. Because that's what the alert is, is supposed to capture. So trustworthy case only is only compatible with the true case in the probe IP1, IP2. On the other hand, if you don't trust the alert, which means maybe what the sensor is actually detecting is the wrong thing. It is not the attack. And then what we say, well, we cannot really say the attack is false because there may be an attack simply because this IDS signature is not doing the right thing. doesn't mean there's no attack. Right? It may have missed it. It may be de de detecting, reporting some benign behavior, but the attack may be going on anyway, regardless. Right? So we don't, say we don't know. So when you don't trust the sensor's result, you just say, now, I don't know if there's this probing happening or not. 
There still could be one, simply because this particular way of detecting it does not really work. Right. So and this actually captures the open-endedness of cybersecurity. There are always different ways of doing bad things. We cannot ever be exhaustive about, you know, to say we can definitely assert there's no such thing going on. Right. So we, we map this to either true or false. And then we do this you know, over the whole proof graph. So for each of them, we'll have this kind of setup. And then we are going to start with each alert uh, sensor quality metrics, which we use alpha, beta, gamma to represent. And then we're going to translate their metric to the, to the corresponding uh, probability weights to the, to, the, to the power set of the hypothesis. And then when you have multiple evidential paths entering into the same hypothesis, you have to combine them. Uh, so in DS, there's a way to combine uh, two branches of evidence into a single probability assignment, and we just apply it here, and then you have a new value after the combination, and then you keep going. Now at this point, we have a slight problem here, because the three evidential paths actually are not completely independent. As you can see, the left two paths are partially overlapping on two alerts pr produced by the same signature. So if you don't trust that signature, simply because you have you know, two cor corroborating evidence, it should not really strengthen your belief since you're actually double count counting on that signature in two places. So you have to address this type of over, uh, partially dependent evidence in the combination process. And there was no a single solution for doing this. People have proposed all kinds of solutions, but we wanted to focus on our problem. And we want to fo follow the guideline from the uh, the, the one of the inventors of Dempster-Schaefer theory, right? We followed Schaefer's guideline to to handle this non-independent evidential path, but customize it based on our specific problem. So our combination is only applicable to our problem. It's only this type of proof graph, not in generic DS reasoning, uh, but it, it actually will give you a meaningful, a more meaningful results than assuming everything is independent. So then we. We, we did that. And now the next thing is, okay, now we have the theory, let's build, let's build a tool uh, to use it and apply it in some actual you know, data and even in the real, real world. Right, so we build a tool called SNPs. Uh, so what it does is it actually takes snort alerts and give a meaning for each snort signature. And this is only done once. Uh, we actually did some simple uh, you know, heuristic algorithm based on the human language description of the you know, Stuart rule signature to infer their meaning and their weight uh, based on those keywords we can find. And once we have that, we can apply this and the internal model that correlates those uh, hypotheses to the incoming snort alerts. And then I want to ask the question, based on all these alerts that you can get from the network and based on your reasoning, please tell me you know, all the possible facts you can derive with the corresponding belief value. And we rank them based on you know, how likely that fact is true or not. And we can output those hypotheses in something like this. And the goal is to see if this can help a human analyst to, to, do, to do their job. Uh, if you have ever got luck running a snort on a, even a small size network, you'll see that if you don't do anything, you probably get you know, hundreds of thousands of alerts every day. 
so we, we tried it on our network, our departmental network, we have got you know, tens of thousands of alerts every day. And most of them are false positive, uh, simply because the rules are very conservative, uh, just which capture a remote possibility of attack in many cases. So let's do something to help a human to go through this. Now, what do we mean by helping? Well, we want to see, can the ranking provided by the RDS believe can really reduce human labor? That's the first thing we want to see. That's the second question we want to ask is, is it really what we did that makes that happen, or just happen by some coincidence? Right? Is it really what we did, all this you know, customizing DS theory that really makes that difference? So in order to see that, we need to have data with ground truth. And you know it's not easy, right? especially for this type of problem. Right? You, 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 you want to have you know, logs, alerts, and then you, you don't know which alerts are really true alerts. And there were probably, I'm aware of two data sets that, that have done this. Uh, one is the very well-known uh, Lincoln Lab DARPA data set, which you probably know has a lot of problems there. And there's also a newer one, is an IARPA data set uh, that we, you can get from PREDICT. There are many problems for those kind of uh, data because they are generated by some human synthesis process. So the way the data is generated will give you some uh, skewed distribution on the patterns. So if you use the data to train your model, it's not going to be very, uh, very valid. But we only use it for testing. So, so that's how we avoid those pitfalls. Now, and, and then we don't really look at the data to develop our model. That's also very important. So we just throw our tool against those data set. Our tool was developed completely independent of those two, just based on our understanding of human analyst's job and then based on we're looking at those snort documentation to derive those meanings. And let's see how it works. Right? Now, long term, we want to really use field, field deployment, but that, there's some uh, challenges there which I'm going to talk about later. Right? So, one thing I want to look at is does the ranking provided by our DS calculation really gives you a meaningful prioritization? So, if you set the hypothesis for the alerts on certain value. I say I'm only going to look at alerts that support hypothesis with at least 0.9. And that's my cutoff. Anything below that, I don't care. Then you can actually compute precision recall. Okay. Precision means if you only take that alert, what's proportion of those alerts that are actually true alerts? After the higher, the better. Right. If all you get is shorter than you are not wasting humans' time. Right. One is the best. Now, if when you move the threshold lower, now I have one minus threshold here, so this is actually one. And you move it lower, uh, you move it on the right part of the S axis, you want to see a decrease in the precision. So that means the higher threshold gives you more likely you actually see true alerts. If you move to a more lower threshold, you may be wasting more time. And that's a meaningful prioritization. And that's what, what we see in the Lincoln Lab DARPA data set. Okay. And we do it again for the predict IAPA. Now, there is a slight anomaly here, but overall, the trend is still going down as your, the cutoff moves from, from high to low. So that's good news. 
what does the green line mean? The green line is the the fraction of total alert that you have to look at if you set that as the threshold. So the precision is the true alerts divided by the, the total number, the yeah, the total number of alerts. And, and that's the fraction of total number of, of alerts. So so if if you cut the threshold here, you're only look, looking at about the maybe two percent of the overall alerts. So you're saving some effort there. But as you move the threshold you know, lower and lower, you are going to have to process more and more alerts. And then the recall will also grow, which means you actually capture more true attacks. But it's not growing is, uh, well, in that case, it's actually growing faster than this one. Yeah. Now, in that case, it's actually gr growing not as fast as the total effort. So, and then we want to see whether all of this is because we did this complicated computation. And maybe you can just do something simpler, which can get the same prioritization effect. So then what we did is to see, what if you only, let's say, take the standard Dempster-Schaefer theory without any customization to deal with the or partially dependent evidence, which will give you uh, the standard DS curve, or you can just take the maximum node in any correlation graph and take that as the weight for every alert in that, in that graph. Or just don't do any correlation, just take each single alert quality matrix as the decision point. Right? How can we compare these different, different approaches? Well, we, we compare them by plotting the rock curve, the receiver uh, operation characteristic curve. So what that means is you have the x-axis being the false positive, and the lower the better, and the y is the true positive. Uh, that means the percentage of true that actually you captured. So one is the best. And uh, this is the most optimal point, but we can never get there. The closer to this point, the better the system. Right, so then you can see what we did actually move the point closer to the most optimal point it's actually made a difference. So it's not by chance this actually worked. You do need to do all of this to get a better result. And the same trend you can see in the predict IARPA data set as well. So these are just some sort of sanity check to see if it can ever have a chance of working at all. If even that doesn't work there, probably we don't even want to bother doing a field deployment. But after this point, also maybe let's see how it can work in a real network, and that's a real test. Right? You throw it into a production system and see whether it can, it can find out true problems. And that's what it did. Right? We deployed at our own departmental network. We had PhD students analyzing the output. You can guess how that works. <laughs> and then we, do, we did have a one math student who had some system in background to, to help. Uh, you need to have those expertise to interpret the result. But still, we have problems, uh, challenges, I would say. It's hard to find true incidents. They are rare. They don't always happen. When you do this experiment, maybe no attacks. So you don't really get a lot of interesting ca cases. And then most of the things are still you know, false cor correlations. But you want to know why that happened, you have to analyze those outputs to see why that happened. Now, that needs some domain knowledge and 
more contextual information to really see if that's a false alarm or not. Unfortunately, our system has already helped us a lot. He didn't have a lot of time, more time to even help us to interpret the results. Because this is not something he actually normally used at work. So why would he spend time to see yet another tool and try to use that and understand the result? And it may not work afterward. Right? So we didn't really get a lot of help in terms of interpreting the result. And we did not have a lot of experience in security analytics. And we don't really have data access like for server logs when it did matter. We did not really can, we cannot log in to get those logs and see what was really going on to confirm that. So all of these were challenges for this research. And uh, we were sort of stu stuck for a while. And now we think, okay, maybe we should rethink our research strategy. Maybe the first thing that we need to do is to learn how to do security an analyst job. Because that's crucial in understanding the output from our tool. And maybe even you know, more important is crucial for us to understand what is really needed, what is really missing in the operation. Right? So this job is actually more an art than a science. A lot of hunch feelings, no manuals, there's no like, formal training for those analysts. They just throw at the work job, do it. Right? It's a learning through to the pain. So we have to go through the same process in order to get the tacit knowledge embedded in that work environment. Another knowledge is not really written down. It's a very new field. And people haven't really got around to synthesize the essential processes and skills that are needed for this job. And that's also a challenge in training as well. So then, you know, what can we do? How can we get to the tacit knowledge you know, in, in, a, you know, in a good way? Right? Well, there's really no better way than being part of the operation. And that has been studied in a different setup by you know, two anthropologists. Uh, they only to understand how humans learn. Right? And, and, and what, what uh, Jean Leib did was that she actually went to Liberia for a quite a few years, and she spent extended period of time just to study and observe how tailors there learn their jobs. And they can, do, they can make very nice clothes mimicking what was shown in this you know, Paris fashion show. Right? These are really highly skilled tailors. And then she wanted to see how they actually learn the job. And she wanted to see how the apprentice of the tailors actually get to learn how to do the measurement, design, cutting, putting things together. What, what she found is there was no training at all. The master didn't train the, the new tailors. They just started working right away, and they first do the, the finishing work, like just putting on the buttons, getting the final you know, uh, weaving touches, and then moving gradually towards the more advanced skills. And they learn by doing and by observing. Not very surprising, I would say, but the finding after this study plus another study that she did after she returned to US showed that not like what people tend to believe, knowledge and learning is not always explicit. Uh, we all learn in some way or the other. We take classes, we sit in the classroom, that's learning, but learning also happens in a subtle way. Right? It's often embedded or even embodied in practice. So you, you learn stuff by doing it, and you learn it from your peers. So there's a social dimension to knowledge as well. If you are not part of the social organization, you're not going to learn it. 
Right? And that actually sort of put me in a sort of very uh, extended thinking to say maybe we'll never have to worry about those uh, the MOOCs will drive the university out of business because we have to learn by being here. And the social connection is very important, very important factor in learning. So the conclusion from their research is that in order to get the passive knowledge that are embedded in that workplace, you have to become part of that what they call communities of pra practice. You have to draw in that community to be able to extract the passive knowledge from, from that. And that's what brought us to our new project on bringing anthropology into cybersecurity. So sort of start from the very, very fundamental question is, how analysts do, do the job in the first place? Can we understand that? And can we model it precisely? Uh, we did it through interviewing. Uh, we talked to friends who did the job, but then that's probably not going to be enough. And because a lot of the uh, subtleties were hidden in the work themselves, if you, if you are not there, you probably, it's hard for you to really get to the, the core of the knowledge. So what we did, uh, supported by the NSF grant, is to have multiple students <laughs> embedded in security operations of different types of organizations. So obviously we had uh, our own university security team, which we had very good working relationship. So we had three of the, the students embedded there working on different aspects of the job. They were just working like an analyst, yeah, so like a trainee there. And then we also had one of those, those three students to be embedded. Uh, he actually worked at the HP Security Operation Center for six months right, to learn how actually that is done in a commercial setting. And we had a one summer intern embedded in Halliwell's SOC for three months. And then we're still trying to expand that into more places to see whether we can find recurring patterns uh, or something is unique to the particular c company we studied. So what we have found out so, so far was very different from what we thought we were going to find. Uh, there are a few points here. Uh, the first thing that we found out right away was simple problems, very simple problems do not have solutions in either you know, commercial off-the-shelf or open-source tools. Uh, things like how to map an externally observable IP address to an internal de device is an unsolved problem in practice, even though it's trivially solvable uh, by building some you know, log parsing and then database caching to speed up the lookup. Uh, those kind of things were not e even there in any of the tools that we have found. Um, people have to do in a very rudimentary way and took minutes to find this device for single IP. Uh, we went in, we got the speed, the speed up to you know, only a couple of seconds. Uh, so that's something that can really make a huge difference in operation, even though it's not really rocket science. And also we had the problem of, we all had the challenge of getting our research tools used by operation people, because they just don't have time, or they don't have the interest sometimes. Now, once we were there, Whatever we built was taken right away by, by the analysts. There was no hesitance because they knew what we built was directly embedded in their workflow. They can see from five minutes to two seconds that saved their time a lot. So it grabs it right away. And the very interesting finding is when they are going to use our tool, to use it in more ways than we thought it, it, it was designed for. That actually opens up 
more tacit knowledge discovery. But they'll ask you, oh, you can do this, then maybe if you also add this component, you can also do that. I never knew they needed to do that because they didn't see the tool in the first place. So they, they cannot think about that will become a useful feature. If you ask them, what do you need, they will not tell you until they see the very, very first prototype. Oh, yeah, that I see you can actually enrich it to achieve this. And, and that's important because I usually have this case which involves that. So then you, you know all of that. So this tool-driven knowledge dis discovery is sort of different than the traditional anthropological notion of tacit to explicit knowledge conversion. So in the classical conversion, you have you, know, you become the apprentice of the people, and you learn the tacit knowledge this way, and then you you, know, you walk back and think about what you do, and reflect, reconstruct the actions, and then you make that explicit, and that's sort of the end of the story. And you write about them, you publish. But now we're actually going to turn that into models and tools that I can feed back into the community, and they are readily accepted by the community, and that drives more tacit knowledge discovery, and then it also helps the people who do the job understand better how to do their, do their job. And that's actually the quote from one of the analysts that we work with. He said, oh, you're really helping us to know better what we, how we do, we do our job. Because everything now becomes much more clear once we see how everything works in the tool. So you know, again, you know, just in summary, uh, I truly believe this anthropological method are highly relevant to cybersecurity research because we are dealing with humans. Uh, human, but both for defender and then offender. And we can actually benefit by working down the pedestals of academia and then drawing the community of practice in certain ways uh, to try to get the tacit knowledge and then you know, convert, that, convert, that, convert that into more useful technologies. So I guess with that, I would like to thank you and uh, if there any questions I would like to take, if time permits. Do you still have students uh, working as uh, analysts now? Uh, at uh, at uh, my university? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are still a couple students there. And they are just there uh, all the time. And uh, so they're actually, they have you know, developed certain frameworks that is embedded into their, their work now. So we're using that as a way to solve more problems for research as well. So it sort of served us well as well. So we, we actually have you know, you know, data access for whole campus network. We can do a lot of interesting research on that uh, platform. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, no, thank you for coming.